Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdina Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Shabbat, Kuf Lamed, 130. Conveniently, this daf begins with a Mishnah. And conveniently, it begins with a Mishnah that the actually the content of it runs throughout the daf, even though it's also, of course, interrupted with other, you know, juicy choice bits we're going to talk about as well. So here's the Mishnah. Rabbi Lezer Omer, so what happens? We're talking about a situation. It's already referring back to something that's already happened in the Mishnah, right? We're talking about the halachas of muksa on Shabbat and the, what can you carry in the event that you have a baby who was born on Shabbat, and that means that the Brit Milah is going to be the following Shabbat. Again, assuming everything is healthy and everybody's healthy and so on. And now you have a mohel who has to carry very select, expensive tools, um, surgical tools, basically, right, which are considered muksa, and they're muksa machmat mitzvah, or they're muksa machmat, or right, either they're muksa because they are connected to the mitzvah, or they're muksa because they are so expensive, right? They're not easily replaceable to begin with. So the presumption is that the mohel will bring those tools to the location of the brit milah from Arab Shabbat. And that's what happens. What happens if he doesn't bring it from Arab Shabbat? So Rebbe says he should bring it on Shabbat, but he should, meaning this, the, I don't know what, the scalp or whatever the specific tools are, he should bring it on Shabbos, but he should bring it revealed, meaning that knife or scalpel, whatever it is, should be visible so that everybody can see that what he's carrying there is not some random item, but very specific, and and therefore maybe risk people risk thinking, risk people's thinking that what he's doing is carrying something muksa, but rather he's carrying his his circumcision tools, and therefore everybody will know that what he's doing is above board. But what if we're talking about an era when you know a Jew walking around with a brit milah knife would be a problem, right? Because there certainly were periods in Jewish history, and in this same era of Jewish history, where uh, where there was decrees against make, of the decrees against circumcision, so you can't just walk around with your circumcision circumcision tools. That's you know a bad a bad publicity, so to speak. So there, mechaseu al So then, what he does is he covers that same tool in the presence of witnesses. So what they can do is say, ah, but what he was doing, he was carrying the proper scalpel or whatever the tool is, rather than random other, I don't know, anything he might have wanted to carry. That is that would not have been permitted. The Mishnah continues. Says, well, you know, you could even cut down trees to make charcoal, to make iron, whatever it is that you need for the purpose of this brit milah, the mitzvah of which is to do it on that day, on that day, eighth day, which happens to be Shabbat, you do whatever it takes. And here's the rule, and the rule, of course is very nicely attributed to Rabbi Akiva. Kalalama Rabbi Akiva, who, right, because he, he's known for, you know, making the very difficult, abstruse passages of halacha um, relatively clear and straightforward to understand. He says as follows, If you have a pra- uh, an action that you could do Erev Shabbos and you don't do it, then, says Rabbi Akiva, then you cannot do it on Shabbat, right? If you could have done it from beforehand and you didn't bother, then 
then it doesn't have to take the precedence over Shabbat because, hello, you could have taken care of it in advance. Umila, she Shabbat, but Brit Mila, which is something that you cannot do in advance because it has to be done on the eighth day specifically, that obviously will then push off Shabbat. Um, okay, now I just want to go very briefly into the Gemara here because it it's it unpacks it very nicely for us. So what happens? So the concern is, what was Rebbe Lezer's thinking about why he has to say that the, the scalpel, that this tool has to be uncovered as the person walks through the streets, as the mohel walks through the streets, to make sure, is it to make sure that everybody knows that we have here a mitzvah and isn't that wonderful brit milah, hooray? Or are we saying, that he's doing to avoid any suspicion that why is he carrying, right? And then what's the difference? And this, it's, it's, such a, it's such a clutch Gemara kind of formulation. What's the difference between if you're, if you're walking around with your, with your scalpel revealed for the sake of the mitzvah or for the sake of making sure that everybody knows that you're not doing something wrong? So the Gemara says, well, the difference is that if you have... If you if you were not permitted to bring it because of you know some kind of decree from the authorities, the, and then you cover it in the eyes of the witnesses, then that seems to be not about pride in the mitzvah, but because of suspicion. You don't have to have like having it covered does not. Let me say it differently. Once you're talking about covering the the scalpel then you're no longer talking about pride in the midst. There's no reason to talk about it. But if you're talking about um, it being a matter of suspicion, meaning to make sure, what are you carrying? Well, then those witnesses become relevant and important in making sure that everybody knows that you haven't done something wrong. Um, okay, at this point in the Gemara, it's still open as a question, and... The Gemara goes on to say that, well, you know, Rev. Levi, Rev. Levi says that Rev. Lezer said it about Chibuve Mitzvah, that that's what, his, that's what his point is. And it's not so simple because Rav Ashi says, no, no, but we're talking about witnesses. So then maybe we're talking about, yes, indeed, that time of danger where you cover it up and you want to make sure that that's what's really going on, that, it's a, that he's carrying these items specifically for Amila, for the Brihila, and so on. So, the Gemara concludes that it is uncovered for the sake of mitzvah, but the factor of what when it's going to be covered in the sake of the, in the sake for the sake of the witnesses, that is about that is a time of danger, and to make sure that everything is why it's happening. Well, I think this is an interesting Gemara because it is a little bit acknowledging that there were always times in history where. Uh, you know, Mila sometimes was not actually allowed. And therefore, the halacha sort of needed to account for that type of scenario as well. Um, so there's something very poignant about that Mishnah to me. I think it's very much, I think it's very, uh, let's call it real, right? Like this, there is this era and it colors, it's a backdrop of for Chazal. They lived in the time of the Romans. The Romans were not big fans of circumcision. Right, right. So I think that's why, you know, they acknowledge it that this actually could be a possibility and yet are communicating through this Mishnah that, look, this is a true value of the Jewish people and something that people 
um, have always tried to do. And I, I'm going to talk about that a little bit later when they, they get into that. Um, but I, there are two things on this path that I wanted to mention. Um, the first is there's a very interesting discussion that I think some people may be surprised to read about, which is about eating poultry with milk. Um, and it gets, it's a total tangent in the Gemara itself, right? It begins with quoting a brisa that is again, uh, bringing down this halacha from Rabbi Eliezer that one would be allowed to uh, cut trees on Shabbat if you needed, uh, in order to sort of make charcoal, uh, to fashion the tools that you would need to circumcise a child, right? So in other words, like it's the scalpel wasn't even ready. You just, you, you needed to make the tools themselves. And then, and it's because it says, it's talking about what the tradition was where Rabbi Eliezer did. So then they're going to quote another halacha, which is location specific. And it says, Right, where Rabbi Yossi Haglili would live, they would actually eat uh, poultry with um, with uh, uh, with cheese. So, first of all, I found this amusing because I think this is something a lot of people don't know about. Um, also, um, you know, I uh, for me personally, um, when I think about eating milk and meat together, together, chicken and dairy, I have like no taiva for it. Like I have no desire for it. Like chicken parm does not look interesting to me. Chicken, you know, uh, uh, cheeseburger, that looks interesting to me. But anyhow, the Gemara goes on and says, and now it's going to tell us a story about this. And it says the following. Leave but I just want to, I just want to, yeah. I know you pointed this out, but I want to highlight it. Um, it is very strange. It is very strange that the Gemara goes to talking about Rebelezer's locale and his halacha. And now we're going to talk about something completely unrelated about a completely different person, except for that they're both, you know, situated by locale. That's very strange, the way this Gemara jumps from the one topic to the next. We always say that the Gemara is discurf- discursive, and it does jump from topic to topic. This is unusually separate, distinct from one, one piece from the next. Yeah, no, it's a total tangent, and it's very interesting how it gets, and it spends time on it. It's not like they just quote the Brisa. Right. So then the Gemara goes on to say, Levi ikale leve Yosef, um, uh, reach base. So Levi went to visit the house of uh, Yosef the hunter. And they served him peacock um, in milk. So first of all, this is interesting because, you know, Anne and I spent a little bit of time in this. Anne was like, peacock is kosher. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about um, birds and their kosheras is that it's really just the list in the Torah. And it's not like, you know, the animals where it's, you know, having split hooves and chewing cud. It just says like, you know, which animals are kosher. And that's sort of what we say is kosher. And in fact, if there isn't a Masora for it, uh, we don't have it. And I know this um, story. I have a very good friend whose family is Iraqi Jews. And apparently one of the family members, like, um, and then they lived in Japan and they did not have a Masora, that duck was kosher. And there was a family simcha where duck was served and the patriarch of the family sort of got up apparently on a microphone to say like, wait, this is, it's not a kosher affair because he did not know that people in America actually eat duck. Um, So so then the Sora question, I just want to also interject here. I'm sorry to keep jumping in. Um, This question of what the Masora is, right? The list in the Torah is the birds that are not kosher, right? So then the question is, what do you do with something that isn't on the list of not kosher, but what you don't have a Masora for either? So the big thing, I think even more than duck, 
that people talk about and give shiurim on and Dr. Uh, what's his name? Ari and David Zivotofsky have a whole Dani, sorry, Ari and Dani Zivotofsky have a whole article about it, is Turkey. Because Turkey was a new bird when, you know, at once upon a time. Um, and there's no Masora for it, but it's not on the prohibited list. So we eat a lot of turkey. Right, exactly. So I think that's But we don't eat a lot of peacock. We don't eat a lot of peacock. So I think that's one thing that's interesting here. And so what happens? So this peacock and milk is served to him. And what does it say? Um, he didn't eat. He wouldn't eat it because, you know, he didn't think that this was okay. But the issue isn't the peacock here. I want to emphasize that. The issue is the milk with the peacock. Right. He acted like Kame de Rabbi. So when he came in front of Rabbi Huda Hanasi, Amarle, he said to him, Am I lo tisham t'mihu? Right. So he says to him, he says, why did you not excommunicate these people? He's saying, Rabbi Huda Nasi, you are like this powerful Nasi. Why are you allowing that people are eating poultry and milk? Right. So Amarle, he says to him, I trade to Rabbi Yehuda ben Patera, have Bamina Dilma de Rashlehu, Rabbi Yosi Aguili. So he said, where that happened, it was the locale of Rabbi Yehuda ben Patera. And, you know, I thought to himself, maybe Rabbi Yehuda ben Patera actually taught the halacha like Rabbi Yossi Haglili. So I also think this is a fascinating piece of Gemara because it teaches us something about Machlokas, right? So um, again, this is such a great Gemara because it's teaching us about that peacock potentially could have been kosher, that there were people who ate poetry with milk. And now we get a great nugget about Machlokas, which is essentially a the nugget? Nasi, right? Like a chicken oh, nugget? Oh God, not pun, pun not intended. Okay. So, <laughs> I'm sorry, I um, couldn't help. I couldn't help myself. Totally fine. So, you know, Rabbi Yehuda, very different than I would say the personality of, you know, Reverend Gamliel II, right? Even though he's the Nasi, he's willing to say, you know what? There's a strong Masora for this. There's totally a respectable Das Yachid on this. And therefore, you know, we're going to record it. And in fact, I think Das Yachid is a little bit the theme of this stuff because there's even a discussion that comes at the Rabbi Elazar, right? His view of how you can carry things on Shabbat for Mila was different than the Chachamim. And yet they record this Mishnah with Rabbi Eliezer's opinion. So I just think we see something very interesting of what Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi's approach was to Machlokas as the Nasi, right? He did not look at it as his job to excommunicate anybody. This is a very different type of way of being a Nasi, different than the story we saw of Rabbi Gamliel and Brachot, right? Where he's basically saying, no, he's entitled to do it because, you know, we do have good people who said that this was an acceptable thing to do. I just have two little comments. One is now that I'm looking at it again and I'm seeing that Levy, who appeared in the earlier part of the of the daf, meaning about the instruments of Fermila, Levy appears in this piece as well. So I wonder whether Levy is the connection. This guy, I don't know anything about him. Do you know anything about him? Mm, not not enough to talk about today, but yes. We'll have to look him up for, for future I mean, discussions he's, he's of Levy. Ta- he's a Tana. He's a Tana. Right. So, but meaning my point is just maybe that's enough of a connection that that would explain why Rabiosia Glili is suddenly you know, his point is suddenly here because there's a further discussion there. I mean, a further connection. Sorry, I said the wrong word. Um, and the other thing I want to say is that in our, in my intrigue about the fact that, lo and behold, Peacock being kosher, um, or perhaps not, so we looked it up a bit, and I just want to say that the OU has a very lovely essay on Peacock's being kosher, and it's psak there is that, yes, indeed, it is kosher, Um but the last time it, there was any record of it 
peacock being eaten in a kosher way was like in the 1800s and the OU does not certify peacock as kosher and perhaps we'll include the link in the notes afterwards um and and what was the other thing and chabad says eh, well we don't have masora so now nah, we're not going to treat it as kosher which again falls back to this question of like to what extent do we actively need a masora that something is indeed kosher as opposed to simply saying that it is not on the list of not kosher Right. It's so it's a good article. I think we'll post it on our, um, you know, on our Facebook page for people to look at. Um, I then, but, you know, then the Gemara goes through uh, a very interesting, like, how did Rabbi Yossi Yossi Aglili get to this? Um, How did he understand this? I think it's worth just looking at it. And it's really just based on the Gemara that says, lo tachlu kol nevela, right? You can't eat an animal that basically died by itself, that wasn't shechted appropriately, that's from a Pasuk in Devar, in Parag Yudal, Pasuk Chafalev, chapter 14, verse 21. And then again, it says, Lo Tavashel, you know, Asur Levashel B'chalev, you know, Lo Tavashel G'di B'chalev Yimau. And so basically the idea here is, is that just as, you know, you, what what he's doing here is very interesting because he's saying that just like you can't cook uh, nevela and a nevela has to be meat, right? It's not anything that's poultry. So therefore, the same thing of the lo tochel, right? That you don't eat the kid that's in its mother's milk, right? It could only apply to meat, and that's how he learns this out that it would have to exclude poultry because it doesn't. Poultry doesn't have mother's milk. So in other words, that it's a mitzvah specifically with animals that are mammals. So I thought that was a very interesting read of those pesukim. Um, I just wanted to point out uh, two other things on this top. First of all, we have our friend. Alicia Ben Knafayim again, right? The man who's associated with being very careful and medactic with um, tefillin. We saw that previously on Shabbat Daf Memtet. And the last thing is, is that, you know, there's a very interesting Gemara here. I don't know that we'll read it inside, uh, which talks about sort of the Simchas Mitzvah, right? Of, of, of you know, taking a mitzvah upon yourself is Simcha. Um, I guess I will read it. Tanya Rabin Shimon Ben Gamliel. Right, so Rabbi Shimon Gamliel teaches, Omer kol mitzvah shekiblu aleim b'simcha, kugom mila, dichtiv sas anochi al amratacha, kemotzei shalat rab, adayin osino tapasimcha. That any mitzvah that the Jewish people took upon themselves with happiness, they still perform it happily. V'chol mitzvah shekiblu aleim b'kitata, but any mitzvah that they did, the Sfaria translates that word as contentiousness, right? Like they weren't so happy, B'nai Yisrael, to do it, Kagon Orayot, and this is fascinating. And what's the category here? Is Orayot, right? Like sexually prohibited relationships, right? Right? Because it says in Bamidbar, okay, that they were crying uh, with their, uh, that they were crying with their families. Um, and that essentially the way that they're learning this chapter is that, or this verse in particular, is that B'nai Israel was not actually happy uh, it's a pasuk that's in Baalotcha, and that B'nai Israel were actually not happy um, to keep these mitzvot. Now, this actually has to do with, it's in the context of mun falling, um, and that they were tired of eating mun anymore. And this is, you know, the whole thing where like Hashem sends them fowl and poultry. So I think that's also interesting that there's sort of like another bird connection here. Um, and that's how they get meat, the slav. But they interpret this pasuk to mean, why were they actually crying with their family? It wasn't really about the mun. But it was that they had to uphold these mitzvot of Orion. And then it says, mishpach, mishpach 
And it says that the Jewish people basically saying they're still not so happy to keep these. Deleka Ketubah, Delo Ramuba Tigra, right? That the fact that, you know, with that there, and then it says a very interesting, there's no marriage contract in which there's not contentiousness, right? So then it broadens it even more to say that usually when people get married, there always tends to be some type of contention or conflict. And why is that? Because we did not take upon ourselves bisimcha, right? Some of the uh, prohibitions that Hashem gave us over which marriages were allowed or were not allowed. So I also thought that was like a very interesting read of what they do with that particular pasuk. It's interesting to me that that pasuk comes in the context of, again, of, of, of fowl, of birds. Um, and that also sort of the Gemara acknowledges that marriage between two families does not always, uh, is not always smooth sailing. But in such an interesting way, right? Like it's, it's loving it in this, levying it in this way of, well, you could have had a perfect dynamic, except for that lack of simcha generations ago, right? right. It's, you know, it's a very interesting acknowledgement of the fact that there can indeed be conflict in a marriage. Yes, it's totally in a roundabout way, but it's very interesting. Okay, I just want to know one more thing, and with that, we'll close. Uh, this, po- this point that I open with, which is the mission, of course, that you know colors the whole page, really does continue through the whole page. And then there is further discussion, and I'm not going to read it inside again, but where the question is, there was a Masa Shahaya, there was, a, in fact, an event, right, where Rav Abba Barav Ada said that Rav Yitzchak said that once upon a time they indeed had to give a baby a brit milah on Shabbat and they did forget to bring the scalpel and they did have to carry it with themselves you know they had to carry it with them as they went but this time instead of talking about is it revealed or was it hidden and was it besimcha or you know with pride in the mitzvah or was it a matter of you know showing that they were not carrying something inappropriately whatever it discusses this whole business of how did they get there did they walk through Rashid Rabim did they manage to get there without going through Rashid Rabim and then that discussion spins off into you know again we we are always talking about carrying when it comes to Shabbat right and and here it is again what about an enclosed yard what about a courtyard what about going over the roofs right and and all of these def- definitions of exactly the the place, I feel like the Gemara is getting us ready for Masachet Eruvin, right? In terms of, in terms of its uh, topic, right? Like that we're moving on from the, the focus on the utensil of the Brit Milah to what does it mean to walk with it, right? Which is, of course, the main point of Rabbi Lezer to begin with. He's talking about when you're walking carrying, but there, his whole focus is on the item. And the Gemara continues later to discuss the, that, in fact, that process or literally the procession, right, of what it means to walk carrying the scalpel through the streets to get to the Beit Milah on Shabbat. It should not be, you know, we should not ignore the fact that, again, I think, Dana, you made this point, so I guess we're not ignoring it, that the, focus, the, the ultimate focus here is on making sure that no matter what it takes, that Beit Milah happens on time. Yes, exactly. So we'll conclude with that. That's our DAF for the day. Rate this reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about. This is like a very literary DAF. There's a lot of connections between many of what seems to be disparate topics. Um, And until tomorrow, go and learn. 